And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. Exodus chapter 3, verse 2. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. It's so nice to be back home and <laughs> to see you again. I've missed being here at Good Shepherd with you guys. Um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, God tells us that the whole scriptures, and it means both old and new, but specifically in the moment at which the Spirit spoke that through Paul, it was the Old Testament chiefly in view, that the Old Testament was written for our instruction. And this is um, abundantly true in this story that's very familiar to us from all the childhood Bible stories, the flannel boards and whatnot of the burning bush. There's much instruction to be had about who God is and how we draw near to him. Because that's what this is, right? It's this encounter between God and Moses. So we learn something about how and who we encounter as we encounter God. So I want to just point out the various details that were right there, are right there in the text. You're welcome to follow along if you like, Exodus chapter 6. Sorry, sorry, Exodus chapter 3. Um, uh, but I want to just point out a number of details. So the first thing is, it's significant that the burning bush wasn't ahead in Moses' path that he was working. Oh, quick biographical recap. Um, so Moses, just to kind of, for me, one of the things that didn't really happen until seminary was all of these stories that you kind of hear from Sunday school and sermons to actually like stitch them all together in the right sequence. Like, oh, that's who that happened to. So just really quick recap of Moses. Of course, he's the one who, um, while the Egyptians, sorry, while the Israelites um, are slaves to the Egyptians in Egypt um, and Pharaoh's bearing down hard on the Israelites and Moses, so as a baby, he gets put in the basket and sent out in the river and gets found by Pharaoh's own daughter and raised as Egyptian royalty, even though he's Jewish by blood. And he comes into adulthood, and then in his early adulthood, um, he sees this injustice being um, committed by this Egyptian against a Jew, his own kinsfolk, and he murders that Egyptian, and then gets called out for it, and then runs into the wilderness, out of Egypt, east into Sinai, uh, the Sinai Peninsula. And he lives as a, he stumbles into this Midianite family and marries this, marries this lady Zipporah, and he works for Zipporah's father, Jeth, uh, Jethro, um, and he spends, I can't remember this month if it's 30 or 40, but it's either 30 or 40 years as a shepherd for his father-in-law. Um, people sometimes make jokes about that scripture where it says, because we know Moses was the author of, the human author of Torah, when it says Moses was the most humble man who ever lived, like, well, how could he write that? But actually, it's sort of a weird version of the Cretan paradox, right? That only the most humble man could actually write that. If you think about it, it, it clicks over time. But um, so I think one of, this was certainly the re arena in which the Lord led Moses into great humility. Right here, he was raised in a palace as Egyptian royalty, working as a shepherd for his father-in-law for decades and decades in the wilderness. And so what we Moses, as we encounter him at the beginning of Exodus chapter three, is doing just this: his daily task of making so that the sheep stay together, get fed, and he's taking care of them. So he's tending his sheep. Um, and I guess it just struck me in thinking about this lesson for this Sunday that the burning bush appeared over there. Right? Now, sometimes the Lord shows up in the midst of your path. Think of St. Paul on the Damascus Road. Like Paul could not have missed Jesus when he knocked him off his, um, onto the ground. Um, but here, I think the thing that struck me is that if Moses had been so engrossed in his worldly task, so preoccupied with just sort of how he earned his daily bread, 
he could have actually sort of gone by that thing, like, oh, just some flicker of light in the corner of my eye. I've got to just attend to my work right now. I, I guess it, what really struck me was I just imagined if Moses had a smartphone, if he was glued <laughs> like this through his day, he would have passed right by the burning bush. And I know that is a comic image, but I mean it to indict sort of our over-engrossment in the things of this life that we could miss when the Lord is presenting something on the side. And the reason I think this sort of side angle is important is because it gets mentioned twice in this scripture. First, it says that Moses turned aside to see this great sight. Every word in scripture is meaningful. The Lord gave us every word. So it doesn't just say Moses went to see this. He turned aside. He, he left what he, his ordinary occupation to attend to this thing that was beside him. Um, and remember, Moses didn't know what he was going to find when he, he just saw this weird thing, right? He didn't know he was about to encounter the living God in a way unlike any other person had until this moment, prior perhaps to Adam. Um, he just was following this sort of, what is this strange thing? And I think this maps onto how the Holy Spirit speaks to us uh, in our regular life. It's not always, here's the full explanation of why you should do these things, right? It's often just this sort of very suggestive, um, it's more like a sort of it comes almost like a suggestion to the conscience like oh no don't do that thing and it can be so quiet it can be easy just to plow ahead but to say well I, wait what's going on over there in that in the in my conscience lord are you trying to like guide my footsteps like we pray all the time that you would do right um it might be a, a, a suggestion to refrain from something to go do something to reach out to this person or a way of doing something um, but i think the lord doesn't often sort of leads in his communication to us with this sort of suggestion, this, this burning bush on the side in the periphery. Will you attend to this thing? And if you draw near to it, there's more to find out. But the first part is just paying attention. I also um, want to point out that even though the ESV translates it just, the, the, word, the Hebrew word as just bush, it was anciently always translated as thorn bush. And you know, the Hebrew scholars, they're like, ah, oh, is it bush or thorn bush? And they kind of go back and forth. Um, but it's useful, and certainly all the church fathers um, interpreted it as a thorn bush. And so we kind of see you know, God being this master storyteller, weaving the whole fabric of human history together. What was the first curse given to Adam in the fall? Right? You'll plow the field and it'll bear thorns. And his thorns being enveloped in fire. Also predictive to what would be the, one of the um, final instruments of Christ's passion before he was nailed to the cross, the crown of thorns, that the Lord is weaving these, these events together to communicate to us that a thorn bush, thorn bush being used is suggestive of redemption. But the more astounding feature, of course, isn't what kind of bush it was. It's that it wasn't burning, right? It was enveloped in fire, all those words for fire, but it's not burning. It's not turning gray and decaying. It's just standing there. Um, unhurt, just like the way that um, Daniel and his friends would be in the furnace and they're not burning. And what I believe this communicates to us about God's work towards us is that his redemption doesn't annihilate the fallen creation. His redemption doesn't annihilate the fallen creation. Usually fire would burn up what it touches. But God, when he works towards us, um, he doesn't annihilate the thing that he touches. He actually, in a mysterious way, allows it to remain. So two instances of this. When we look at, um, we were studying in catechism that the two great, all of the truths of the Christian faith can be presented under two headings, incarnation and trinity. 
And we think about everything that God has revealed about himself um, that we hold dear in the, as Christians. It falls under one of those two things. Um, in the Inca- Today, Trinity Sunday, we were looking at the Incarnation um, in the Catechism class. That In the Incarnation, when God became man, it didn't annihilate his humanness, right? He didn't just sort of, uh, he, he, he didn't live above the ordinary whoop and wharf of human life. He, he was without sin, to be sure. Um, but we know, as Hebrews affirms, that he was fully human, truly human, that, which is different. You would think that some, someone, if I could speak that way, with the immensity and grandeur and glory of God, when he took on human nature, that it would just sort of evaporate human nature and he would just be God. But that's not what happens. The fire of his divinity dwells in the thorn bush of his humanity, and yet the bush is not consumed. His humanity is not destroyed. He remains a human, even as he's fully God. It's true also in us. We confess that the Holy Spirit, through faith and through our baptisms, has come to live within us. Everything in the Bible remains true. No one looks at God and lives. When God speaks, the mountains tremble, and yet God lives within us, and we haven't just been obliterated. Right? The thorn bush remains even though the fire consumes it or envelops it. It doesn't consume it. I think also in the way that Moses approaches the burning bush, there's this image of how we approach God's communication. And here it could be the promptings of the Spirit or the, the truths that the Bible presents to us that the church proclaims day after day. The gospel, as we call it, of God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who gave himself for us in our place to pay the debt of our sins so that we can live forever. This message is something that we always at first draw near to only as an inquirer. Like, what is this thing? I'll give it a hearing. You know, Moses, sort of, what is this thing that I'm looking at? But when we do that, all of a sudden, um, when we turn aside to hear, then the living God speaks from out of that truth to us. Right, so it's sort of the, it's like uh, we 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 pay attention to this message, but then God actually addresses us personally through that message. Moses, God calls out to him, Moses. And here's where I think that turning aside is important because it's mentioned. This is what really struck me from this passage, as if I'd never seen it before until this Sunday, to preparing for this Sunday, in verse four, when it says, "When the Lord saw that Moses that he turned to see, when the Lord saw that Moses turned to see." But God was sort of watching, like, will Moses pay attention? Will he draw near, or will he just kind of go about his day? When the Lord saw that he turned to see, that's when God addresses him. Moses. Moses. <coughs> we begin by beholding ideas, and if we do that, then God behold, speaks to us individually. And Moses, while he could have just run away in fear, he does the right thing, which is to stand and sort of existentially presenting oneself to the living God who sees us. Here I am. (laughs) Here I am. And then God directs him in a most interesting way. He's at, God clearly wanted Moses to draw near, but then God says, stop. Do not come any nearer. And says, you've got to take off your sandals off your feet. Have you ever wondered about why take off the sandals? I actually went looking. I was like, is this some like ancient Near East thing? Like when something special, you take your shoes off? Couldn't find anything. Not in the most arcane commentaries. Um, and then um, 
as, all, as so often, the church fathers suggested a guide, as a gu suggested the interpretation that well, his sandals, what would they have been made of? What every sandal in the ancient world was made of? Leather. And what is leather but the skin of a dead animal? Right? Death. Think about and think about all of what we know from the law as God revealed it. All of the things where God says, stay away from um, what is dead, right? Because it's, it, it doesn't go with what is alive, which is God. Right? All the things, you know, if you touch a dead animal, you've you got to stay outside of the, of the worship for a day. If you do this with a day, you know, it's like there's all these things about stay away from what is dead. And so Moses has on his feet a dead animal, an animal that God created um, in the form of leather on his sandals. And God says, you've got to take that off if you're going to stay here, right, on this holy ground and drawing near to God. I don't think this is just some sort of random nitpickiness on God's part. Everything God does in the Old Testament is written for our instruction. There's this symbolic value, right? I mean, Mo Moses is, if we sort of reduce it down, Moses is being asked to take off the dead flesh from him in order to stand in God's presence. I th you can catch where this is going, right? We just heard in Romans 8. It says, um, put off the flesh, right? The carnal deeds of the body, what is deadly about your flesh? You've got to take that off to continue to stand in God's presence. And we do that with God's help, only by his help. When we obey his command to leave behind the deeds of the flesh, which the New Testament lists in many places, anger, vanity, lust, gluttony, envy, only if the Holy Spirit takes off the dead flesh, the sandals, are we able to stay and remain on holy ground. Moses would come back to this very spot about a year later, right, with a million plus, two million plus Israelites in tow. And then God would then reveal himself, not just through a, the intermediary of an angel. It says at the beginning of this passage, an angel was the sort of agent of the presentation in the bush. He'll see God um, unmediated and receive the law that would govern Israel for centuries. Um, the other thing I want to point out is that, so Moses had this incredible, I mean, we would still call this right, a spiritual experience. Like, God, there's this profound enigma, and then this voice, and this encounter, and he says, here I am, and God speaks to him. But then God weaves this spiritual experience into the larger history. And these are the two pieces I want to catch, spiritual experience and history. Moses, until God, the Spirit identifies himself, this voice, he, Moses doesn't maybe know who he's talking to. Right? He just knows this bush is talking. And then the voice in the bush says, you need to know who I am. I'm the God of your father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Right? There's not just some sort of like, oh, some angel or some, uh, any random sort of deity that was named in the ancient world. No, this is the God who made the universe, who made a covenant with Abraham 500 years before Moses. And, Mo and then by naming Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Moses' experience is being placed within a larger history of redemption in which Moses would play his part. And it's the same thing, I think, with us as Christians, that we need these things to go together. The spiritual experience, the sort of mystical experiences that God grants from time to time, be sort of nested within this larger redemptive history, that we're not just interacting with any God, we're interacting with the God who came to us in Jesus Christ, the God who's been leading the church through his Holy Spirit for 2,000 years and given us a faith and a knowledge to, with which we can receive him. 
And so we need both of these things, the spiritual experience to remain anchored in the history and the history to be animated um, by spiritual experience. That just tradition keeping isn't true religion. It's keeping the tradition and from the tradition encountering the living God and having our encounters with the living God be rooted in the history we find ourselves a part of. These things go together for Moses' life and for us. And Moses hides his face. He's afraid to look at God. Um, his response when he realizes who he's talking to, who's talking to him, his response is holy fear. The scriptures give um, several qualities that um, give evidence to really encountering the living God. Um, sometimes joy. I think about the apostles singing in prison after they've been beaten, as we just heard suffering with Christ. Um, sometimes fear, holy fear. And I love holy fear um, because the other things have sort of more ready counterfeits. Like it's easy to kind of get really excited about something that's not God, like to feel kind of a joy about, I don't know, a, a great day. Um, holy fear is a very certain mark of having really encountered the living God, as Moses had. And so it's something that when the Holy Spirit inspires us, inspires that feeling in our hearts, the sense of reverence and, oh my goodness, God is tremendous and overwhelming. And, um, you know, it says there's a dread warrior. That impression um, is to be cherished as a mark of having really encountered the living God. Lastly, um, we can't pass through Trinity Sunday without talking a little bit about the Trinity. Um, God revealed who he truly is only fully in Jesus Christ, right? In these sort of messages given at his incarnation to Mary and Joseph, but then really when his ministry began at baptism and the voice from heaven speaks and says, this is my beloved son and the spirit descends in the form of a dove and all, you know, and then all of a sudden the message is out there. God is one, but he's also three. But it wasn't as if God was like, okay, I've been, you know, kept you totally in the dark on this one, and, and now here's the, here's the truth. There's all these suggestions, these kind of hints and um, cues that this would be the case throughout the Old Testament, um, and indeed even here in this passage. When we look at how God speaks to Moses, it says that an angel causes this fire, right? But then it says very clearly in the, in the passage, God speaks. So it's God speaking through a messenger through this visual apparition of fire around a bush. Right? There's kind of these three things through which God is communicating. Right? A messenger in the middle, a, a word. And then, but the very the thing that sort of on the very face of the presentation that Moses is encountering is fire. Interestingly, non-coincidentally, the very symbol the Spirit uses when he descends on the apostles. Right? So we've got this sort of multi-layered way in which God is communicating, even in this bush incident in Exodus 3, just as he would reveal that, in fact, he does speak through his word right? and gives us um, an encounter with fire, with the Holy Spirit, to perceive him. Additionally, when God names himself to Moses, through whom he would do the greatest work until the coming of Christ, right? Christ is prophesied by Moses as one who is greater than Moses, one who is greater than himself. When he names himself, he names the three patriarchs. Is it an accident that it's a three, three patriarchs? It could have been two or four, but it's not. God's weaving together these suggestions to prepare the mind, the mind of his people, our minds, to receive the knowledge of who he is 
3 and 1. And then look at those patriarchs. Abraham, his name literally means father, father of many. And he has a son who gets offered up in sacrifice. And then the one who comes from Isaac, Jacob, brings forth many, many people, actually replaces his brother, right? Just as we see the Spirit inviting many, many peoples, Gentiles, into um, the people of God. So I think there's even these hints and suggestions right there in this ordinary, this passage that we're very familiar with, that God is, in fact, three in one. It's a revelation that is, we only see with great clarity now that Jesus has come, um, but suggested all the time. So um, my hope in sort of pointing out these details of Moses' encounter with God in the bush is twofold. One, that... Um, to suggest that in very familiar stories there's always a lot more going on in the scriptures than we maybe initially recognize um, but also that we might trace some parallel in terms of our own seeking to draw near to God right who here doesn't want to draw nearer to God and to know him more and we have a, some pictures in this encounter with what that can look like all glory be to God Father Son and Holy Spirit um, who's revealed himself to us in many figures and types of the Old Testament in the mysterious fire in the thorn bush, and who is present to us now by the mercy of Jesus. Amen.